Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take our hearts and make them yours. And Lord, set us on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is the last week that I'm, I'm preaching on Exodus, and I've tried to kind of cover the, the highlights of the book in two weeks, but that's hard because it's, it's a long book, as you know. Um, this part of the story starts off uh, pretty, pretty promising for the people of Israel. They're camped at the base of Mount Sinai, and uh, you know, God, God initiates this thing with them where he, he invites them to, to join in this covenant with him. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they agree quickly because, of course, they've just watched him, you know, send all the plagues on Egypt to set them free. And then he parted the sea so they could walk through it. And then he led them through the desert in a pillar of cloud and fire and all this incredible stuff. So they'd have to be idiots not to say yes at this point, right? So they say yes, and they're very excited about it. And they get uh, the Ten Commandments, which form really uh, the, the basis of this covenant, right? Every other law that follows in Exodus and later on in the lovely and delightful book of Leviticus you're about to start reading, um, all of those laws, what they're really doing is teaching the Israelites how to uh, apply the Ten Commandments to their everyday lives. But, but it's the Ten Commandments that form the core of Israel's relationship with God. These are the basic guidelines. Everything else is just f- fleshing these out a bit more. So he starts with the covenant. Right, okay, they take the Ten Commandments down the mountain. The Israelites see them, and they think, yeah, we can probably do that. I think we're okay with not murdering. Um, turns out they aren't later on, but that's a different story. Um, but at first, they think this is okay, and, and so they agree to it. And, and then Moses goes back up the mountain, and God now is going to teach him or explain to him uh, how to build the tabernacle, which, again, you've also read that recently, and... and um, I, you know, I told my Wednesday night Bible study, you know, th- these are like the, some of the driest, most boring verses in the Old Testament. Um, but they are really important to read because the, the symbolism that is tied into the construction of the tabernacle and later on the temple, which follows the same pattern, teaches you a lot about what the tabernacle is for and what God is trying to do. So you have all this, this rich design elements, and it goes into detail, and it tells you how the curtains are decorated and what color they are and what the carvings on the lampstands are. And, and the, uh, the basic idea is you have this sort of threefold structure with this outer courtyard and a tent in the middle divided into, and the, the courtyard represents sort of earth and the whole of creation, and that's where the, the average everyday Israelite is able to go in and worship and offer their sacrifices, and that's where they go. And then inside the tent, you have the holy place, and you have the most holy place, and the holy place is decorated very much like, like both the Garden of Eden and, and sort of the sky and the cosmos, and so there's all this rich imagery. The, the lampstand is carved to look kind of like a tree, so it's, it's sort of like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden that they've now been cut off from. Uh, And then there's this table with bread on it to remind them of God's provision for them. And the holy place is where the priests go to offer up their prayers and their incense, and they pray for the people in the holy place. And then there's the most holy place. And only the chief priest goes into the holy place, and it's a dangerous spot because the holy place is where 
God's presence is. And where God's presence is, is a dangerous place to be. And so only the chief priest goes into the most holy place, and he only goes in once a year. And when he does, they tie a rope around his ankle in case he dies so they can pull the body back out. I don't want that job. I'm fine not going in there. It's okay. So there's this sense, that, right? It's not just that he can only go in once a year. He has to go through all these, these incredible purification rituals to make sure he is completely free of sin before he goes in. And even when he does, he has to burn so much incense as, and carry it with him as he goes in that there is too much smoke for him to see. He's literally supposed to blind himself with the smoke of the incense so he can't possibly risk seeing the presence of God. Because that's dangerous. And, and you should be clear that this is not a case of like, okay, God sees you're unholy and he squashes you like a bug. No, no, no. What it is, it's, it's very much this idea of cause and effect. The natural result of something unholy colliding with something holy is fatal. It's just like a law of physics. It can't be subverted. It's how God designed things to work. It's built into the fabric of creation. It's not an angry God smiting people. It is, this is what is necessary for you to be in my presence. And that theme will get carried out throughout the rest of the Old Testament with all the sacrifices there to offer up. The point of those is not we're going to divert the punishment for our sins away from us. It is we need to make ourselves holy so we can go and stand in the presence of God. And so that's what's going on. And, and in their minds... The way that this is written, the way they conceive this is literally in the fall in Genesis, God's presence is removed from creation for the most part. And what's happening here in the tabernacle is that in this holy place, right above the Ark of the Covenant, heaven is extending down to earth. So they conceive of this as as very much like a throne for a king to sit on. And in the ancient world, a throne includes a footstool so that the king's feet don't touch the ground. So in their minds, God is in heaven on his throne, but his footstool is here, right above the Ark of the Covenant, and God is extending his presence. He's extending heaven itself to this one spot, right above the Ark of the Covenant. It's like a hot spot of holiness. And it is with the people of Israel. So this is what they've established, and this is what they've agreed to. That's why they build the Ark of the Covenant. So that in that spot, God will be with them, and in that spot, heaven will be there, and they will carry it with them, and it will go before them, and it will be the thing that makes them different from everybody else. The problem is, Moses is up on the mountain receiving these instructions. Now, you read those instructions if you're following along with our Bible reading plan. There's a lot of them, and they're very detailed, and he's chiseling them into stone. It takes a while, right? It would take you a while to write it out by hand. He's got to carve it into the thing. And as he's up there, the people at the foot of the mountain start to wonder. Right? Boy, this Moses guy's been gone a long time. Is it possible he's just forgotten us? Maybe he fell and died. We don't know. But we need something to worship, so let's make a new God. Right? And that alone is incredible, isn't it? Because, again, these are the people who saw the plagues in Egypt and who saw the Red Sea parted and who saw the pillar of cloud and fire. And, and even now, as they're at the base of this mountain, they can look up and they can see at the top of the mountain all these clouds where God's presence is. God is right there. And they think, let's just make a new one. <laughs> that one's taking too long. We're going to make this one. And so they make their golden calf. And, and then Moses comes down, and, and of course he's enraged, and he 
smashes the tablets of the law. And, you know, in all the movies, he's, he's portrayed carrying those tablets down with him. But if you pay attention, actually, he's already done that. So first he has to go find them and break them. It's premeditated rage. I love it. Right? And, and then he does this incredible thing, right, which, which gets glossed over uh, because Christians are too polite to talk about it. But he makes them drink the ground-up gold. And if you have small children, you know what happens when metal passes through the human digestive system, right? Absolutely nothing. It comes out the other end intact. Yeah? So in the morning, all the people of Israel can see exactly what has become of the idol they made. It is a disgusting and powerful object lesson, and it works. It works really well. You know why? Because they don't do this again until Moses is dead. Right? He dies before they make another idol. They learn the lesson. But the best part comes when he confronts Aaron afterwards. Aaron, I left you in charge for five minutes and you made a new god. What happened? Well, Lord, you, Moses, you know how evil these people are, right? So deflects the blame first off. Just, by the way, like Adam in the garden. Well, the woman who you gave me made me eat this fruit. And what was I supposed to say, right? Just, well, Moses, you know how these people are. <laughs> so they, they demanded a new god, so I, I took all the gold and I, I threw it in the fire, and then this calf just popped out. I don't know how it happened. It just came. That, it just sprung into existence, Moses. I had nothing to do with it. Absolutely wild that these people who watch their god being made would, would then bow down and worship and would then say, this is our God who brought us up out of Egypt. Unbelievable. But when you really think about it, it makes sense. They made this God. So this God is not going to demand anything from them that they don't want him to demand. He won't challenge them to do things they don't want to do. He won't ask for sacrifices they aren't willing to make. They control them. It's much easier to follow a God you created because then you control him. You make all the rules. You get to design your own religion. And doesn't that sound a lot nicer than having to follow the rules that the other God gave you? Because sometimes those are hard to follow. And, and to be clear, God is, in fact, quite a demanding God. And I have to wonder, maybe, maybe some of these Israelites were sitting there thinking about the price that was paid to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And were wondering just what this God was going to ask in return and if they would be willing to actually pay it. So they decide, you know what, maybe instead of doing that, we'll, we'll just make our own God, and this God won't ask anything from us that we don't want him to ask. And that'll be easier for us to deal with. So, here is our new God. See, uh, our idolatry in the modern world is usually more subtle. Most of us are not making golden calves, I hope. But it's just as dangerous and just as prevalent and we fall into these traps just as easily. It's very, very easy for us to direct our worship away from the true God and into things that seem easier to worship. And, and the challenge for us is very often, very often our idolatry dresses up as Christianity. 
It's very easy for us to remake God in our own image and not even realize what we've done. Because I can tell you, if you read through the scriptures, and particularly if you read in the Gospels, and you don't find yourself a little uncomfortable with some of the things that Jesus is saying, you've probably remade God in your own image and you didn't even notice it. If, if you read through the things that Jesus says in the gospel and you, you don't feel yourself being a, a, a little, little uh, shameful at some of the things he says, you've got a problem. Because very often the things that, that he says that you want to just gloss over and ignore are the moments where he is actually poking your idolatry right in the face and saying, ah, I got you here. Here's where you have tried to reshape God in your image. There are things in the Gospels that should make us uncomfortable, that should make us feel quite convicted at times. Because as I said, we all fall into this trap. It's so easy. Look, if, they, if these people who literally saw a pillar of cloud and fire leading their way through the desert can decide on a whim to take all their gold jewelry, make a new God and worship that, you can't sit here and tell me it wouldn't be just as easy or easier for you to fall off the path or for me to fall off the path and to decide it's easier to go my own way and to make up my own rules and to do what I want and to cherry pick the things in here that I would like to believe and follow than to actually take the whole thing and live with it. This is a hard thing we are called to do. But you see, just, just as God calls the people of Israel out into the desert so that he can dwell with them and be present with them, and ask them to be holy so they can stand in his presence in the tabernacle. Now, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we become the tabernacle, and we become the structure through which God's presence is made known to the whole world. That's his goal for us. That's what he wants, is for us to be a people who carry the presence of God with us wherever we go, so that the people who need it most can find it with us. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work if we are gripped in the throes of idolatry. It doesn't work if we have abandoned the worship of the true God for something easier and smaller. The best part of this story, really, is what happens afterwards. Because God doesn't just wipe the Israelites out and start over. He brings Moses back up to the top of the mountain, has him write down the commandments again, and sends him back down to the people. And they start over. And he gives them the chance to, to join in that covenant again. And see, this, this is what God does for us. Because there is, there is just no way that we all haven't fallen into this trap at one time or another. And we probably will do it again. We will find ourselves in the grip of idolatry again. And the beautiful thing is that God doesn't stand there judging us or condemning us or smiting us. But rather, he stands there inviting us back home. Giving us the chance to come back into that covenant that he is making with us. That's how God works. He'll give you chance after chance after chance. Because he knows that you're human and you'll make mistakes and he knows that you'll fall off the path occasionally. And frankly, he knows that what he's asking of us is hard. 
And he knows that undoubtedly some of us are looking at the man on the cross and looking at the price that God paid to break the power of sin and death over us and wondering what that God is going to ask of us now and if he might ask too much. And so he understands and he has mercy and grace and is always standing there ready to welcome you back in to that covenant relationship. That's the God we worship. And that is the God of the Old Testament. That's the God that Moses worshiped too. It's easy. It's easy to surrender ourselves to our idols. But thanks be to God, it is just as easy to come back. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.